everybody. Welcome to North Coast Chronicles podcast, Tales from the Great Lakes. I'm Helen Broll, your host as we explore the Great Lakes, America's fourth seacoast. I'm so pleased to be working with the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And over the next 12 episodes, we'll explore a lot of different aspects of the Great Lakes with scientists, historians, colleagues, and even a few friends and family. And I confess, our first two sponsors today are um, close friends of mine, both Miller Boatline and with the Middle Bass Stock Company. Thanks, guys, for helping us out. This is our inaugural episode entitled March of the Mayflies with Dr. Carmen Trisler. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with the Great Lakes, the Great Lakes inland waterways were carved over 14,000 years ago by receding glaciers. These freshwater lakes that connect to the Atlantic Ocean via the St. Lawrence River and the Gulf of Mexico via the Mississippi River. It's over 1,200 miles to sail from the mouth of the entrance of the St. Lawrence River through Lake Ontario, Lake Erie, Lake Huron, Lake Superior to Duluth, Minnesota, and then Lake Michigan to the west. The Great Lakes hold 20% of the world's fresh surface water. The North American Great Lakes, also known as the Laurentian Great Lakes, offer diverse ecology, flora, fauna, fish, and extraordinary human experiences that I look forward to sharing with you. Now, I'm a Great Lakes gal, having grown up on the southern shores of Lake Erie. I've experienced a lot of changes in the lake since I was a child, both good and bad. I remember when the Cuyahoga River in Cleveland caught fire in 1969, when the sharp, tiny shells of an invasive critter called zebra mussels would pile up in beaches, and the high water levels experienced in the last few years. I've also ridden on cargo ships in the Great Lakes and through the locks on the St. Lawrence River, had my share of regional beers and wines. I've pondered the history of thousands of shipwrecks hidden in deep waters and not so hidden in less deep waters in the Great Lakes. And it kept my eye out for our version of the Loch Ness Monster. So helping us out today is our trusted engineer, Tyler Buckingham. Hi, Tyler. How you doing? It's good to be here, Helen. Thank you. So in addition to being our engineer and all-around handyman with the American Seashore Podcast Network, you have a podcast of your own, yes? I do, yes. Uh, the American Shoreline Podcast Network. And uh, I have, well, you know, I've got the American Shoreline Podcast that I co-host with my, my partner, Peter Rabella. That is, that is our weekly show. Uh, but way back in the day, Helen, and I did have a little show called The Beach Shack, uh, which I know you would have appreciated. It was kind of a little ode to, to simple beach beach shacks, you know? Yeah, I love that. Now, um, now you're, you're actually um, talking to us through the Lone Star State of Texas, but do you have any connection with the Great Lakes? I do. Uh, my father and uh, uh, my family, my, my dad's side of the family is, is from the Midwest, Chicago was his hub. And I remember as a kid, he showed me pictures of him surfing uh, on Lake Michigan. So uh, it, I, I grew up knowing that the lake, Great Lakes were formidable. Uh, he would tell me stories of big storms coming in off the lakes. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't, having not grown up there, uh, my connection is not like yours, that's for sure. Well, you know, speaking of Chicago, I think that Northwestern University may be the only university in the States that has its own private beach. Huh. So, yeah, <laughs> nice. So I'll take a break, head to the beach, jump in the water, do a little surfing and come back to class. Not bad. Not bad in uh, spring little, term. <laughs> little, yes, exactly. You have to come back in the summer for that one. So, so for those of you who don't know the Great Lakes well, as I said, there is an acronym called HOMES, H-O-M-E-S, that you can use to remind yourself of the names of the Great Lakes, obviously, Huron, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, and Superior. So in case you're tested on that later, Tyler, you've got that in your back pocket. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Now, I did go to a site called Michigan.org because I wanted to get a few other tidbits about the Great Lakes. Did you know that Lake Superior contains half of all the water in the Great Lakes? I did not. Now, I didn't. I don't think I even knew that. You take all the other lakes, the four other lakes, put them together, and that equals Lake Superior. I think we're not surprised that it's the deepest lake in the Great Lakes to 1,330 feet deep. So if you sank the Empire State Building at that point, you might be able to see the top of the antenna sticking out. Wow. But yeah, so it's pretty deep. So you think of you know shipwrecks, we think oh, we should be able to find them through the Great Lakes. But think if they go down that far, that's pretty tough. Now, I also checked with our friends at NOAA, and I was reminded that the Great Lakes region is also the primary water source for more than 40 million people. So that makes it even more important. And the Great Lakes economy generated over $3 trillion in gross domestic product while employing 25.8 million people. 
uh, for a, a total wages of um, almost uh, 1.4 trillion. So it is not uh, just this uh, region to the north. It is has extraordinary impact on the United States and extraordinary impact on millions and millions of lives. Now for me, um, it is very personal. I love the Great Lakes. As I said, I grew up on Lake Erie and my entire um, youth and um, a lot of my adulthood has been around the Great Lakes. Now, um, I wanted, I mentioned a little bit about Loch Ness Monster. Now in Lake Erie, we have, there is a tall tale about a Loch Ness-like monster in Lake Erie and it's called Bessie, not Nessie, Bessie. Um, I'm guessing that it was nicknamed after the Davis Bessie nuclear power plant in the western end of Lake Erie. I don't know if there's any correlation between that and a critter out there. Um, and, but what you see are these typically vague, shadowy pictures of a head popping out of the water, not unlike in Loch Ness. Um, but honestly, I'm hard-pressed to believe they're real. However, if any of our listeners out there have any experiences, you know, please give me a holler. I'd love to hear about it. Send me a note at northcoastchronicles at gmail.com. So today we're talking about um, mayflies, March of the Mayflies. With the cicadas having, you know, come out of their tree sap cocoons after 17 years and talking about kind of these infestations and that they're everywhere, honestly, it made me think about mayflies. So where I'm from in the Great Lakes, mayflies were pretty much a yearly occurrence. So to give you an example of why I think they're kind of cicada-like, if uh, let's say you're, you're kind of at a retreat in a nice little motel along the lake and you get up in the morning, it's a beautiful morning, a little crisp, but you think, you know, I got to get my jacket out of the car. So you go outside and before you even get to your car, you're not sure you can even recognize it because they're covered by your car. It's like a foot of dead mayflies. <laughs> Sounds creepy, but it's not really. On the hood, on the roof, on the back end, mayflies everywhere, mayflies all around the car. And you think, uh, 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 you're afraid to even open the door, right? Because mayflies will come flying down into the car. And you had to go back to your room and find that there's mayflies all around you. You didn't even realize that they're starting to light on you. So when I think about mayflies, I think about cicadas, I think about mayflies, and I think about immense swarms um, with a quick and fast life, just like a cicada. But but what is a mayfly? Have you ever heard of them, Tyler? Not until uh, not until you propose this show. I have to confess. Excellent. So um, mayflies is we're good. We're very fortunate with us to, today to have Dr. Carmen Trisler. Dr. Carmen Trisler is a retired professor from Wittenberg University in Ohio, a great school one of many great schools, I will say, from Ohio, and um, has spent um, much of her career, research career, every summer uh, on South Bass Island at an Ohio State research lab called Stone Lab, and then also also summers in the Bahamas doing research. Dr. Dr. Trisler, welcome. We're so glad to have you with us. Well, thank you so much, Helen. It's nice to be here. I'd like to thank the sponsors of this podcast, Miller Ferries, running daily service to Putin Bay, Ohio, on South Bass Island and Middle Bass Island in Lake Erie. Go to MillerFairies.com to learn how you can put an island in your life. Thanks also to the Middle Bass Dock Company on Middle Bass Island, served by Miller Ferries and your access to the historic Lance Winery State Park and the Middle Bass Island Music Festival on July 17, 2021, supporting the Lake Erie Islands Conservancy. Go to MBIMusicFest.com for more information. Thank you for listening to North Coast Chronicles, Tales of the Great Lakes. I'd love to hear from our listeners. Email me at northcoastchronicles at gmail.com with feedback and ideas for future podcasts. Um, before, before I have you kind of explain what a mayfly is, I'm really interested to know what your specialty was at Wittenberg, um, an extraordinary career, and what kind of research did you do in the summers? My specialty was aquatic insects, aquatic entomology. And as I would tell the students, that's bugs that swim. Although it takes up a little more uh, than that, it's insects that live on or near the water for at least one stage of their life cycle. And aquatic entomology is a fairly new science. It started when uh, fly fishing first started back in the 1920s and 30s. 
and people were tying flies. Uh, they wanted to imitate insects that were floating downstream, and they wanted to know what these insects were and what their life cycle was and how they could tie a fly that maybe didn't exactly look exactly like it, but reacted like it in the water. So they had to get scientists who could uh, study these life cycles and pair up the adults to the immatures and uh, see what their life cycles were. And from that uh, became that became the study of aquatic entomology. Well, I'm totally surprised by that connection. I guess it makes sense when you hear it, but uh, out of uh, out of necessity came a really great um, uh, area of study. Uh, out of curiosity, what kind of work do you do down on the Bahamas in the summers, or is it in that win- or you alternate in the winters? Uh, in the Bahamas, we were down there in the summers. Uh, two other professors and I, one Carol, Dr. Carol Landis from Ohio State University and uh, Bird Polar Research, and um, another uh, Gary McKenzie from Bird Polar Research, who was a geologist. And we worked through BRIEF, the Bahamian Reef Environmental Education Foundation. It was started by Sir Nicholas Nuttall, who was worried about the uh, degradation of the reefs, the coral reefs in the Bahamas. Three of us from uh, that had connections to Ohio State University uh, went down to the Bahamas. We had been asked down there by Sir Nicholas Nuttall, who was worried about the degradation of the Uh, coral reefs, and he had talked to a friend of his who happened to be named Jacques Cousteau, and he was worried about the fisheries and the coral reefs, and Jacques Cousteau had said the only way to uh, get things, uh, preserve the coral reef life and the fisheries is through education. So he got three educators Uh, I went down as the uh, elementary, Uh, Dr. Carol Landis was the uh, secondary and a biologist, and Gary McKenzie from Bird Polar Research was a geologist, and uh, the three of us went down and we worked with Bahamian teachers for two weeks down at uh, San Salvador every summer. And we taught them island ecology and coral reef management and identification. Most of the teachers did not swim, and we took them snorkeling, and we taught them what these different things were so that they could take their school children down to the beach and to learn these things. Then in about March of the following school year, we would go down to all of the family islands and visit the teachers and see what they were uh, teaching and take supplies to them. And they each were given what we called brief buckets. We took a five gallon plastic bucket and took the bottom out of it, put in plexiglass so that they could submerge this bucket and look at the different things as they waited around the coral reefs so that the students or the teachers did not have to get into the water and get their faces into the water and they could look at these organisms. Pretty incredible. And what a legacy that you did, first of all. Um, That connection to Jacques Cousteau makes me want to know all about you. There must be all kinds of parts about your life that are so interesting. So, So mayflies... Um, I don't know if there's any difference between a mayfly and a midge, but what really is a mayfly? Well, mayflies are an aquatic insect. Uh, they're a very old aquatic insect, very primitive. Uh, they live about two years, anywhere from six months to two years, in the water in an immature stage. And then they come out of the water uh, and de- shed their skins and they live about 17 hours to 24 hours as an adult. They don't even live long enough to need a mouth to eat. They just use up the the resources they have stored within them. 
So are they a little like the cicada that they, they, they come out of, you know, the water, they mature, and basically they're trying to reproduce before they, they die? That's all that insects have their mind on. Their little tiny <laughs> insect brain is to reproduce. It sounds like a few guys I dated too. But. And they live their whole life to reproduce. So, so why are they considered, I, I read that, um, that they're considered like ancient, that they were here with the dinosaurs. How, does, how would you know that? What, what is it about them that makes them so ancient? Um, partly their body structures, uh, partly their behaviors. We have done these mostly on their uh, morphological characteristics. I believe that with so much DNA study, some of these insects may change. We may find out that some that we did not think were as old might be older, and some that we thought were very old may not be that old. But mostly it is morphological characteristics. They have gills on the outside of their body and not on the inside like you would find in a fish. Um, they live down on the substrate, and then they get some kind of signal. It is usually temperature. We have looked at whether it's moon phases. We could not find anything that would cause them for the moon phases. It's usually after a few hot and humid days. And then they are down at the bottom of the lake. They get a little gas bubble in their gut and they float to the top of the water. And then very carefully, their skin splits. The adult comes out and it is so light, it weighs about a half a gram. It can stand on that skin that's floating on the water. And then it flutters away when its wings develop, when its wings uh, get expanded. And then it flutters away to usually vegetation or lights attract them. Sometimes you'll find them on the sides of trees or electric poles. Now, they are unusual because we say that insects have an imago, is the adult, and the immature is called a naiad or a nymph. But these mayflies have a, another stage in between called a subimago, and they are not sexually mature, but they look like a mature insect. But then after they emerge, that skin splits again from the subimago and another mayfly comes out. And that's the adult mayfly that is sexually mature and ready to get into a mating uh, swarm. Wow. So, so um, when I was growing up and, and we, they'd be all over the place, if you walked, they kind of, you know, came up and, and alighted, you know, if you got in their way and they would, um, you know, stick on your on clothes and stuff. And we would just pick them up by the, the, uh, the wings and kind of give them a toss and they would, they would be fine. So um, I never thought they never bit or anything like that. Has anybody ever had a story about being bitten or are they like a cicada? And they have no functional mouth. They have only vestigial mouth parts, and they do not eat. The subimago does not eat, and neither does the uh, imago, the mature insect. So if they don't eat, um, then how, are, how do the eggs so, – so the eggs that f go down back under the water, if they're not eaten by fish, I guess, how, uh, they, they come with the energy and the food with them, and that's what they have that whole time that they are under the substrate in the, on the water? Yes. It's the simple answer is yes. And they also can go into diapause and the egg just rests and uh, until we have uh, good conditions for it to hatch. So if they're laid late in the season, they might diapause through the winter and then come out and then hatch the eggs actually hatch in the spring. So I recall as a child having them a lot. And then I recall at times in my childhood where they I didn't see many of them. Why is that? We had them. Uh, there were a lot of them. They are an indicator of uh, highly oxygenated water. They need a lot of oxygen. And we had many mayflies in the uh, Great Lakes, especially in Lake Erie, until about the 1950s when we had such large algal blooms that the algae 
sapped all the oxygen out of the water and they died of anoxia. And we did not have many because we did not have uh, enough oxygen in uh, Lake Erie, especially to support them. And then around the 80s, the 1980s, uh, we had, you had spoken about it earlier, we had the little zebra mussels come in. And the zebra mussels began filtering a lot of the water. We also stopped using so much phosphorus in laundry detergents and in municipalities, and the algal blooms died back. There was more oxygen in the water. And those that managed to survive, those few numbers, or those that were in other uh, lakes or rivers around, could expand now back out into the lake. And we almost have the numbers that we had before the 1950s again. Well, um, if they're an indicator of a healthy lake, that's really wonderful. So I guess every year we would really want to be bothered by mayflies, right? Um, and uh, if we do feel bothered, just remind yourself that uh, it means that the lake is healthy. So, so, but, but, so they're um, where we're from. You and I, Carmen, in the western basin of Lake Erie, it's fairly shallow. I think the the average depth of Lake Erie at that point is about twenty two feet. Um, does it need kind of shallow water areas and does it have to be a lake? Could it be ponds? I read that um, in Minnesota um, that uh, those folks that live around the Mississippi River also have a lot of mayflies because they come out of the Mississippi. What is the condition? Does it have to be shallow water? Uh, it does not have to be shallow water necessarily, uh, but it has to be a certain uh, particle size of substrate that they can get down in, uh, that they are protected by that gravelly substrate. And when we have a lot of silt over the top of the substrate, we don't find as many mayflies. But there are many mayflies that are not the big hexagenia that we have here in the western basin of Lake Erie. There are a lot of very small mayflies, and some of them need very uh, highly oxygenated water, and we would find those in the mountain streams tumbling down through the Appalachians or up in the Rocky Mountains. And there are some that do not take much oxygen, and we would we would find those in smaller, warmer ponds. So they have adapted to the different kinds of conditions, and the ones that we are talking about that you and I have grown up with, the hexagenia, there are two species here, Hexagenia limbata and Hexagenia rigida, and those two need highly oxygenated, what we would call deep water, uh, would be shallow water in the Great Lakes, but deep water as opposed to streams. Wow. So, so um, again, like you said, we, we live in the, in the southern parts of the Great Lakes, but you can get them all over the lakes? Is that what you're saying up into Canada? Yes. Yes. In fact, there was a researcher, Linda Corkum, that I had done some research with and some collecting, and she was with uh, she was from Canada, uh, from Windsor, and she uh, wanted more things collected from the southern shores here, and so we would collect at Stone Laboratory, and then t uh, she would stop and pick those up, and put those with her research of the northern Great Lakes. Okay. So. Um what is the difference between a mayfly and a midge? Because I've heard people use the term um, for both, and I'm not sure that they're exactly the same. A midge is not really a mayfly. A midge is a uh, fly. It's a coronamid fly, family coronamidae. Uh, they come from, if you've ever looked in the, the substrate of a stream or a lake, there's a little tiny uh, insect called a bloodworm. Now, not the bloodworms you fish with, but they are about a quarter of an inch to a half of an inch long, and they are bright red. And those are what turn into midges. And do they bite? No, those midges do not bite. They Some that eat sip nectar, and some don't eat. So when I had the great fortune of being on Tyler's podcast, he mentioned it earlier in the show, um, they were so kind to Peter and, and Tyler to invite me on the show just to introduce me. And um, I told a story about um, the uh, 
Cleveland Indians game, a American League uh, series game with the New York Yankees in 2007, I believe, um, in the fall. And they were the whole infield was attacked by midges. So, um, and and the story goes that um, they got attacked by it, stopped the play. They bring out typical insect repellent, um, which didn't uh, repel them. It actually attracted them, um, which was good for the Indians because the pitcher kind of then faltered and uh, allowed us to get into over over um, extra innings and, and eventually win the game. But those midges, that was in the fall. So, um, and the swarm, they have swarms of them that you can see on radar, just the same with mayflies. So uh, is it safe to say that a midge is a fall kind of a insect where mayflies are a spring? They are also early spring. We have had midge um, emergences already, and they are in mating swarms that are like black clouds over the islands. But the uh, mayflies have just begun to emerge. But the midges will emerge spring, summer, and fall in large numbers. But they are much smaller than our mayflies that we have around here. So if these insects uh, hatch independently from one another, how is it they get together and make these big swarms that are so big and so dense that you can see them on radar? Well, they must have some kind of signal that there's going to be a party tonight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like the islands. And uh, in fact, the males always emerge earlier, and they will emerge between 8 and 9 o'clock. And every mayfly that you see will be a subamago male. And then they will shed their skin sometime within 45 minutes to a couple of hours. And they get into these mating forms, and they are funnel-shaped. And then around 11 o'clock, the females will uh, emerge. And then when they shed from their subamago, they get into these mating swarms, which are a huge vortex. And they start at the bottom and they go around this funnel-shaped tornado of, of mayflies. And if they come out the top and they are mated, they fly off and lay their eggs, sometimes up to 40,000 eggs. And they'll just lay them very quickly and die. If they haven't been mated by the time they get the vortex, the females will go back to the bottom of the funnel and try to come up a second time. Now, all this takes a great amount of energy because remember, they're not eating anything. But one thing that is interesting about them, suppose a a mayfly, a female mayfly is a little late. She didn't get to the party in time and the mating vortex is over. Some mayflies can just hang up, we say, on a tree or a leaf or some something, and they can live 24 hours, and tomorrow their skin will unzip and they will come back in and get into that mating vortex again. That's actually a pretty sophisticated process for such a, a simple insect. You know, so I, I'm torn between thinking of these, of these mayflies as a very simple um, insect because I mean it's been around for thousands, uh, thousands and thousands of years, maybe hundred thousand years, and and thinking of them as incredibly sophisticated because what you described um, in terms of the process of trying to mate, which is pretty, is very taxing, um, and um, they have a very short time to make that happen, is pretty sophisticated. How do you how do you how do the scientists how do you view a mayfly? Um. The thing we have to remember about uh, insects is that it's all hardwired, that this is all instinct and they're not thinking. There are a few learned behaviors in insects, but not in mayflies. This is just all hardwired through evolution. Those insects that did this, they evolved into this and they it worked and they keep doing it. Those that, that do this kind of behavior are successful. Those that don't are not successful. So to me, mayflies are fascinating, but then all insects are fascinating to me. Um, it was uh, quite humorous. I had an aunt that I had not seen since I had been a child, and she lived out of town. And 
when in my 50s I finished my PhD, uh, she was telling another relative out of town that I had just gotten my uh, PhD and the other relative, the cousin said, well, what's it in? And my aunt said, I don't know, but it must have something to do with bugs. That girl always was crazy about bugs. <laughs> yeah, so funny. Thinking about hardwired, I was thinking about a, a few cockroaches in you know, a few apartments way back when that seemed to be pretty sophisticated. I think I started to name them. They were knew their way around so well. That's so great. But so what are what are mayflies good for? I know it sounds like a silly question, but what are they good for? Uh like most insects, their their uh main uh use is in the food chain. Uh the fish eat them, birds eat them. They're high in protein. Um, they uh, are what give us our walleye here in uh, uh, the western basin of Lake Erie, walleye capital of the world. Walleye and the perch, uh, many fish, they eat them as immatures. The birds usually eat them after they're out and, and are mature. Uh, but their place in the food chain is their main purpose. And the other thing we have learned that they are wonderful indicator species of pollution and heavy metals and uh, lack of oxygen. And we can predict uh, some uh, pollution problems by looking at the mayflies. What? Well, that leads to the Next question, what do you think the state of Lake Erie is these days? Well, I was a child in the 50s, in the 40s and 50s, and I saw the big decline. I remember as a child, we used to see um, people using them for bait. They would, uh, that was back when we had milk bottles, and you could fish with crickets in milk bottles, and uh, we would see them picking the mayflies off the electric poles and putting down in milk bottles and taking them out to uh, fish with. Uh, then I saw the decline that there were almost none. And it was just an exciting thing to find a mayfly, even just a single one around on the islands. And then to see the resurgence of them. And we've had to work with a lot of people about them, that these mayflies are a good thing. Because if you're having a graduation party or if you're having a wedding and it's full of mayflies, most people don't think that's a good thing. And uh, we've had to talk about uh, the lake and that the lake has been cleaned up, uh, that they now have enough oxygen. That's also why we have so many fish around in the lake, that they now have a large nutrient source as well as cleaner water. And uh, they're a very, very important part of the ecosystem, in, uh, particularly in this area. So what other things have you changed? As you said, you were there as a child. Um, were you born and raised there or was it your summer place? Uh, I used to come and vacation here with my uh, mom and dad, my family. We would come and fish and usually rent a cottage and stay for a week or two. And then uh, I've been a permanent resident since about 1970. Oh, wow. So are you there in the winters as well, or did you, did you go to Wittenberg? I'm here year-round, and I taught over at Stone Lab from the late 80s when we were beginning to find um, uh, mayflies coming back until I think I retired in 2010. And so I've seen that resurgence again. I should clarify. I don't know if we, if I was clear in the beginning, the, the area we're talking about are is the western end of Lake Erie. It's that that part that's around the Sandusky, Ohio area, and there are islands <clears throat> in Lake Erie. Um, there's uh, three main islands on the U.S. side: uh, South Bass, which has a village called Putin Bay. It's uh, it was referred to um, recently as the um, as the um, um, Please help me out here, Tyler. The uh, Key West. There we go. The Key West of of Ohio, and it is a uh, you know kind of a party place, but it's a lovely, lovely place. And then Middle Bass Island, where I'm from, and North Bass Island, which was primarily known for grape growing and still is. Um, and then there's other small little islands dotted around the the western basin. And then just over in Canada, 
Oh, well, Kelly's Island is another in the U.S. and just over in Canada is Peely Island, which is very large um, and um, had originally been primarily farming, a lot of soybean there. And and many of these places now are, are end destinations for folks, um, big summertime um, day trips. Um, and it, it, later on in some other podcasts, we're going to be talking about the golden age of the Great Lakes. And you can't talk about the golden age of the Great Lakes without talking about the original uh, ferries uh, back in the 18, late 1800s that took people out to these islands and throughout the Great Lakes, not just in Lake Erie. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to that. But um, so 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 this uh, this part of Lake Erie, it's not unique when it comes to mayflies. There's mayflies all around the Great Lakes. Um, and as uh, Dr. Trisler mentioned, uh, there are, are they a different species, a different genus? Yes, there are not only different uh, genus and species, there are different families. Um, the largest ones are the ones we have here, and those are the hexagenia. That's the genus, the hexagenia. They're the family of Femoroptera. And mayflies uh, are um, uh, the order of Femoroptera. They are ephemeral. They're very short-lived, uh, and they're winged insect. The P-T-E-R-A uh, is Greek for wing. And so they are very short-lived uh, winged insects. And you can see by only being an adult for 24 hours, that's where the short lives come in, not from the two years underwater. But when these were named, we didn't know it was the same insect in the water for two years. Oh, that's interesting. So uh, it, so when you said, I, I to this day, I didn't know that P-T-E-R was about winged, so pterodactyl, you know, pteranodon. It's kind of those, so the flying dinosaurs made the connection. Thank you. Learn something new. So, so, so could you tell us, could you just talk a little bit more about what other things have changed in terms of flora, fauna of the islands or, you know, just the Great Lakes that you're aware of since you were a child? Are things the same, changing? Have we lost a lot of species? We have lost species in the uh, form of being extirpated, in which means they're not extinct, but they've moved because we have rearranged the habitat so much. Um, for example, we don't have the stoneflies that we used to have on some of the bars underwater and the uh, uh, interface of the water and the uh, land because people have put up bulkheads and seawalls. So we don't have that wash zone where the wave action comes back and forth over the from the water into the land and back and we have lost many uh, species on uh, the islands and around the edges where we used to have that where we used to have the wetlands because uh, early ideas were marshy squishy land is bad dry land is good and so they have put bulkheads up, seawalls, jetties that have changed the currents. And uh, we have so little of that left. Um, I believe 95% of the shoreline has been changed. And so if, if an insect needs wave wash over it, if it needs a little sand and, and uh, a little... Uh, muck and a little uh, wave wash over it. it, it can't live there if there's a big steel or concrete uh, seawall. So we have lost a lot of those. Um, we have lost those that need um, more um, wooded or uh, a, a wooded swamp or uh, woods down to the uh, lake shore. Uh, because we've had so much building. So as we lose habitat, uh, insects have wings. Most insects have wings, and those that have wings just move. And so we have lost some in that, in that uh, way because we've lost habitat. Any, any impact that you've seen uh, observed about climate change? Is it getting warmer around the lakes, or is it uh, variable? What are you seeing? Uh, what we're seeing in, in climate change is not necessarily global warming, but just change. 
change in seasons. Um, and you don't have to be an entomologist or even a, a biologist to um, understand this. Uh, you know, years ago, we didn't have 90 degrees in May and June that we have now. And then when we come to August, we wind up with 70 degrees. Our summer used to gradually warm, stayed warm, gradually died off. But now we're seeing these uh, peaks and valleys, it seems, all spring and summer long, all winter long. We had warmer weather here on the islands in March than we did in May. So that also um, mixes up some of the life cycles, some of our very early insects. If some come out, but not all come out, maybe there's not, not, another, uh, not other insects to mate with. Uh, so our insect populations are changing and are moving because of global climate change, too. We've, the last couple of years, there's been um, very high water in the Great Lakes, certainly impacted Lake Erie as well. How have, uh, has that had any, I mean, I don't know if that's considered a short-term impact or long-term impact. Have you seen any impact to the um, water insects as a result of that? Does that help? Does it hurt? Uh, it probably depends on the insect. Uh, those that need more water over them uh, would do a little bit better. Those that need uh, more um, spongy ground, that need more um, uh, soil underneath them, a soil substrate, uh, they are pushed a little farther in where maybe it's rockier and they can't get into that substrate. I'm thinking of something like a mole cricket or a pygmy mole cricket that lives underneath the uh, grass and eats roots. If the kind of grass that they're living on is flooded, then they can't get underneath to those. So as the um, as the water levels go up and down, there will be a change. Now, some of that change will just be in moving. They will be able to move where they can find the habitat that they need. Uh, others, uh, there's been such a severe change that they can't move that far. Yeah, and I think this year, well, let me ask then, it just seemed to me a couple of weeks ago, um, the islands were subject to a really bad nor northeaster storm, uh, nor'easters, we would say. Um, and, um, uh, I mean, that's not that unusual in, to me, um, you know, qualitatively anyway. It feels as if we have more of them than we used to. It's not necessarily true. Um, has uh, Does that wipe out colonies of things? Does it, you know, affect any wetlands? Um, we certainly know what it does to coastal erosion and people's properties. But, um, you know, how do scientists view those kind of major storms? Uh, we are having... Uh, I don't know if we're having more nor'easters, but we're having them at times that we don't normally have them, so we notice them more. Uh, we had one over Memorial Day, and that's a little bit late. I've only known about maybe three or four Memorial Days that have been, that the tourist um, destinations have been wiped out because of nor'easters, and one was this year. Um, it, it makes a difference with some of the uh, with some of the insect populations. It makes a difference with some of the fish populations and where they are uh, around. If they uh, need to get out of some of these waves, if they need to get into more shallow water, uh, they will move around, and your populations will shift. And it would have to do, too, with the wave wash over the eggs if it happens during the spawning season. Mm. Uh, what's this? Have the um, mayflies come out yet? Or what's, the, what's their status now, right now, this time of year? We had a very small emergence last night. I expected a larger one after all these warm days we've had. But we've had, we had a very small emergence um, uh, last night. And that would be our first. And the reason I say small emergent is because I'm about, uh, I guess, maybe a quarter of a mile from the lakeshore. And when we have a large emergence, our house is covered. When we have a small emergence, they're, they're still down towards the lake and the lights. Well, you know, so so this this phenomenon, and it's it's I didn't make it up that you could go outside and see your car covered with mayflies. So... 
what what makes that happen? What is that phenomenon? What's causing that that suddenly you see these piles of mayflies? And how would one kind of prevent that? One waits twenty four hours and they're gone. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think also the I think I read that, um, and I think common sense tells us don't park under streetlights, right? Don't park under in the parking lot. Don't park under the light. That's right. That's right. And I'm always tickled by uh, new cottage owners or summer owner homes. And they'll be talking about these mayflies and someone will say, oh, if you want to know about mayflies, you go talk to Carmen Trisler. And they come over and they say, what exterminator do I call to get rid of these mayflies? And I will say, you just wait till tomorrow. Before we knew much about their life cycle, they used to be called Canadian soldiers, and the Canadians called them American soldiers. And they would always say they come on the wind and they leave on the wind. So you just wait tomorrow, they'll be flown back to Canada. <laughs> Canadian soldiers, boy, I just it's out of the uh, recesses of my mind. I completely forgot that we used to call them that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah Canadian, Canadian soldiers. soldiers. Over in Ontario, they called them American soldiers. Just wait for the wind to take them back. Yeah, so just in case, you know, I, I didn't mention this before, but much of the Great Lakes are shared with our friends from the North Canada. Uh, and um, in Lake Erie, it's, you know, we're pretty close. It doesn't take uh, long for us to go over the border, um, the water border, um, to get to Canada. That's for sure. Uh, so we often, I think, uh, half the time, the folks uh, in northern Ohio talk a lot like the people in southern Ontario. Um, and we feel very much uh, simpatico with each other. Um, the, uh, I think the other thing that they tell people that if you don't want a lot of mayflies, you know, close the curtains in, in your cottage, uh, try to, you know, block the light so they don't, cause they're just attracted to the light and then, and they die, they just kind of drop, but, um, um, or their skins, I guess at this point it's their skins that have dropped, right? Not the, not the whole, an the whole insect. Once they're bred, the mayflies, the whole mayfly drops too. And you can find them under piles here at the ferry docks. They use a front end loader usually to scoop them up and they compost them. Several, several towns and cities around the lake have composting. They smell like fish when they die. Uh, they smell like the, the fish, like a fish oil that is um, from down in the lake. And they are composting a lot of them with sawdust and soil and they make a wonderful compost. I bet. Uh, and protein, you said? have aerated or else when you dig them back up, you almost fall over from the, from the smell of them. Yeah. I, I've heard stories um, around the lakes where there's uh, up in, um, up on the, the locks, um, one of the locks, I think up on in Minnesota, they talked about the ones that come out from uh, Mississippi river. The uh, army Corps of engineers talked about that. They just, they expect them every year. They, uh, they get, they get tons. Of, I mean, by the time they've put the piles in with their front end loaders, just like you mentioned, they've got, a, they've got tons. Um, and they, they put, they use them for, um, uh, they don't throw them in the water for the most part. They try to use them for, um, compost. So, um, but yeah, I, I heard this. I just don't remember that smell, but gosh, I guess I don't want to relive that. <laughs> in fact, over in Port Clinton and Sandusky and some of the towns, right on the same post as the stop signs or uh, at the intersections where there are traffic lights, there they will put signs up that say, caution, mayflies, slick streets. Because when you go to stop, if you're in a pile of mayflies, you just slide right through the intersection. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> that sounds very dangerous, but also just, ew, <laughs> you know. Gosh, well, um, you know, it's again this the whole mayfly phenomenon I find so interesting. Um, and for those that were, you know, friends on Facebook and everyone talk about the the cicadas and how interesting they are, um, but they're also very loud. Do mayflies make a sound? Do they sing like the cicadas? They do not. They are very silent. But they do have one thing in common with the cicadas too, that somehow dogs and cats feel a compulsion to eat them and they will get sick from all of the rough wings and the chitin uh, that makes up their exoskeleton. So if you have cats or if you have dogs out with you, um, they will try to eat them and you don't want them to eat too many because they will be, they will get sick. So just the sheer roughness of the body and the wings 
uh, they and they seem to overeat. They just seem compelled to eat mayflies as well as compelled to eat uh, the cicadas. I think the cicadas probably because they haven't seen them before. But uh, mayflies, a lot of people will say here, I just can't keep my dog from eating them. And I said, just keep them in for a few days because they want to go and eat those for some reason. I don't know if it's the odor on them or or what it is. It's like the you know, t- sending the dog out and they roll around in the dead fish and then you have to figure out how to handle that. But that's a really great pointer because um, so folks keep your cats and dogs inside uh, during mayfly weather because you certainly don't want them to get sick. And uh, in a lot of places around the Great Lakes are a little uh, remote. You may not have access to a veterinarian as easily as um, other central locations. So uh, please be careful. So I have to ask Tyler, who's uh, been listening intently about mayflies. So um, now that uh, we've got you convinced you you need to move the Great Lakes, um, you get to uh, experience the the mayfly phenomenon. Well, I'm I'm intrigued, of course, to experience the mayfly phenomenon, and I would I would welcome it, of course, with a with an eye toward curiosity. They they sound like very interesting insects. The good thing to know is one, they don't bite. They only last a couple of days. Um, they're a sign of a healthy lake, healthy waters around you, uh, and um, they are food for um in the within the um the food chain um so they they do um have a a, they're actually good for us i guess hard to imagine at that moment when you feel like your cottage is covered your 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 car is full of them um and the ground is full of them but in fact they really are a great indication of um of better healthy environment which is a positive um during a time of global change uh, Dr. Trisler, thank you so, so much for joining us. You're just charming and incredibly um, and you know um, well-versed, uh, certainly a, a pro when it comes to um, uh, entomology or water insects. Uh, and um, I and let me just mention that I've heard so many wonderful things about you through from so many people uh, around the lakes and extraordinary work that you've done. Uh, and you've really certainly left an incredible legacy. Uh, both in Ohio and in the Bahamas, um, and certainly from Wittenberg University. So I want to thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Helen. It was my pleasure. I'm always always happy to have a time to talk about insects. Yeah, thanks. And and, um, I will confess, folks, it was my sister-in-law, Lisa Broll, who connected me to uh, Dr. Trisler. And um, so um, thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate that. And Dr. Trisler, I really look forward to meeting you in person next time I'm up there. Well, I will look forward to that too. And we'll just talk more insects. Sounds great. Well, I think with a glass of wine might help as well. (laughs) I even have a little mayfly cover to go over wine glasses so you can walk outside with your wine glass during mayfly season. Perfect. Who knew? That's great. Thank you. Um, Thanks, everybody. I really appreciate everybody listening to this episode of the North Coast Chronicles. Tales of the Great Lakes, be sure to subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network to get all future episodes of this podcast and uh, take a look at the incredible um, uh, directory they have of other podcasts as well. Um, with lots of great ocean and coastal podcast content, all for free, wherever you can get your pods. I also want to thank um, my, my friends with uh, Miller Boatline and the Great Lake and the Middle Bass Dock Company. Thank you folks for supporting this uh, podcast. Please join us next time for a podcast called Where the Boats Are with Captain Russ Brohl. Thank you, everybody. Be good to each other. Talk to you next time. <laughs>